Hey everybody, this is James Lindsay, and you are listening to the New Discourses podcast. And this is going to be an important episode, I think. Uh, I want to address the problem in our libraries, and the American Library Association in particular. But um, to do that, I want to give you a little bit of news before I dive into what we're going to do. Although I'm going to go through a 16-page paper, so I don't want to take too much time doing this. Uh, the first thing I want to say, though, is that if you don't know that the American Library Association is run by a openly queer Marxist, and I don't mean queer as a sexual disposition, though that might be true, I mean queer in that she is a queer theorist, a queer activist, uh, then you need to know that. And so if you don't understand that there's a major problem, if you want to know why so many of the problems in our libraries, why do they keep having these inappropriate books, why do they fight so hard to keep them there? A lot of the reason is, in many cases, the American Library Association, the way that books, libraries make decisions is that they have people that recommend books for their catalog, and certain ones they refuse to get books from. You could imagine if like some kind of like neo-Nazi outfit sent a list of books, you should put these in the library, they wouldn't listen. Uh, simultaneously, they have other people that they will basically buy all the books carte blanche. They don't necessarily vet them or look at them at all. And the American Library Association is actually kind of one of those. Uh, and so what we have happening in the world right now is that states, starting with Montana and now at least Idaho and some others, are starting to look at separating officially in terms of finances, in terms of activity from the American Library Association entirely which is very exciting. The state of Montana has voted officially, the State Library Commission of Montana has voted officially to break off of the ALA, especially financially, no more money going to the ALA. So the American Library Association is getting, uh, frankly, what's long overdue and deserved, but their justification is that they're doing so on the basis of the fact that their current leadership is openly Marxist, and that it is, in their opinion, a violation of their duty to the Constitution as a state entity to do business with a organization that is Marxist in its orientation and leadership. And uh, there's lots and lots that could be said. The head of the ALA is a woman named a lesbian woman, not that that matters, named Emily Drabinsky. What matters is that she is openly a Marxist, openly a queer theorist. She did an interview recently where she said, never in a million years did I think they would give a Marxist a chance. So in other words, for all intents and purposes, and I think that there's ample evidence backing this up at this point, we have a wholly corrupt ALA, the American Library Association, uh, isn't just run by a Marxist and not only has you know, lots of things going back to uh, over a decade uh, in terms of manipulating how it catalogs books and what books it has in it. It's also tied directly in like virtually everything else that's a fake professional captured organization uh, tied into the United Nations Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. How about that? For example, here off of the ALA website, I found an article called ALA Task Force on United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. So it's directly tied in. And if you look more closely, um, the American Library Association is, in fact, working in cahoots with a bigger organization called the International Federation of Library Associations, which is completely captured and working in 
concert with the United Nations and UNESCO. So why are these weird books in our libraries? Why are they so hard to get rid of? Well, because the ALA is a captured organization that's working under the direction of a further captured organization called the International Federation of Library Associations, which is tied up with the United Nations and UNESCO, which is where a lot of these things that are we consider problems uh, came out of. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt on their website that how much they are tied to the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, they are completely consistent with the United Nations and World Economic Forum vision. Uh, here's an article, for example, from De Gruyter. This says, libraries exist to serve the Sustainable Development Goals. That seems like a big call. The UN ex itself, actually, and the sdgs.un.org website is fully invested in return. So the United Nations website portion that's dedicated to the Sustainable Development Goals has an entire libraries uh, section on that page, and it describes their relationship with the International Federation of Library Associations. In fact, it says the IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions, will work with our members, that's UN members, including library associations and institutions in 150 countries to ensure their readiness to support implementation of the SDGs in their country and locally through library services and programs, including public access to ICT. Libraries provide an essential means of reaching the next billion by supporting digital inclusion through access to ICT and dedicated staff to help people develop new digital skills. So the goal is that the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions is working in concert with the United Nations to bring the Sustainable Development Goals into library science and library activity overall. And there are articles and articles and articles and articles and articles on this. Um, so it's good that our states like Montana are breaking free. Um, but it's not enough. We need more states breaking free. I think that that should be something every state that can should do. But it's not even enough there because many of the libraries themselves are have... Uh, or I should say municipalities, whether cities or counties, have relationships directly with the American Library Association and not regulated through the state. In other words, the state associations don't necessarily have that much power, the state commissions. And so local, whether your state library commission is willing to break away from the ALA or whether it does, our local and county and city and municipal uh, library commissions which are probably um, largely uh, uh, organized through the city councils or county commissions, should be voting to break away from the American Library Association as well. Any school districts with school boards and so on that have a relationship with the American Library Association that we want to protect should be breaking, voting to break away from American Library Association uh, oversight and recommendations. If a book list comes from the ALA, uh, no library that wants to preserve Western civilization should immediately accept it because we know it's run by Marxists that are using Marxism and the uh, Marxist agendas tucked into the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations to transform libraries into brainwashing centers. So every entity, whether it's a school board or district, whether it's a uh, county commission, whether it's a state commission, 
we can't count on the federal government to do much here, uh, should be breaking away from its relationship with the American Library Association, should be doing so uh, immediately, fully, in terms especially of finances, uh, but also practicalities in the other direction, and should be saying why. We're not operating with a captured institution, a Marxist organization led by a Marxist, uh, who, by the way, said many times that her beliefs informed basically everything that she does. Let me see if I can find the quote. Um, but we have, while I'm looking for it, looking through all the posts I've been doing about the Library Association on Twitter, we have, for example, here, the American Library Association has released a new groomer guide for library workers and teachers. In fact, I thought about making this episode Groomer Schools 6, uh, but it's not specifically about teachers, especially the paper I'm going to read from Emily Drabinsky. Uh, this is, in fact, LGBTQIA plus books for children and teens guidance from the American Library Association. Why is this happening in our school in public libraries in front of children? Well, you can guess that the ALA has a lot to do with it. Uh, they have a site I found, Intersections, GLBT Book Month, Dispatch from a Small Town Librarian, um, from the ALA Office for Diversity, uh, Literacy, and Outreach Services, explicitly calling for uh, all of the kind of queer theory pride stuff that we've been seeing going on through libraries. Uh, trying to find the quotes from uh, Ms. Drabinsky. I don't know if she likes to be called Miss. Maybe we have to call her Mix, but I'm not really participating in that. But she very openly brags that she, in fact, was completely informed by her Marxist beliefs and that those are, uh, here's what it is. Here's what she said. In an interview with WNYC in November, Trabinsky discussed the Marxist lesbian tweet that she did, where she tweeted and said that's what she is. She later deleted that tweet. She said, it is very much who I am and shapes a lot of how I think about social change and making a difference in the world. And so we know that her Marxism and queer theory, queer is a political identity, not a personal identity, uh, has a lot to do with how Drabinsky runs the Library Association. And that's actually visible in her other statements, her work, and what the association's doing both before and under her leadership. But I want in this episode to read a paper, or at least some of, it gets boring partway through, but it's very revelatory at the beginning, that Emily Drabinsky published in the Library Quarterly, Volume 83, number 2, from April 2013, which for those of you doing the math is a little over 10 years ago by the time of this recording. That's a journal published by the University of Chicago Press, for those that care. But this title paper is Queering the Catalog. So that's exactly what the American Library Association is doing, and that's what this podcast is about, Queering the Catalog. And the subtitle is Queer Theory and the Politics of Correction. Now, the idea of queering the catalog makes, to understand that, we have to understand the concept of queering something. Queering, or to queer, is a verb in queer theory. It is to actually come in and disrupt the stability of categories so that any hegemonies related especially to sex, gender, sexuality, and then more extendedly body status, ability status, health status, and so on, are... Uh, seen outside of the light of normative understanding. So queering the catalog means injecting queer understanding into things. It also means, though, understanding the thing that you're going to queer as a text that can be, in effect, deliberately misunderstood and reorganized to advance the destruction of norms 
and values. That's what queer theory is about. As a political identity, this is not me uh, being anything out of the ordinary. I could read it to you from David Halperin in his book, Saint Foucault, toward a gay hagiography. I could make a very clear and cogent point, which I've done multiple times in the past, uh, that queer theory exists to disrupt existing norms, to advance the broader, not acceptance, uh, but actually centrality of perversion and kink and all of these other things that we associate it with because that's what it's really about. So queering the catalog is an opportunity in the eyes of queer theorists to use library cataloging, which is a form of categorization of books and presenting categorized books to a public looking for them in a way that advances queer theory. That's going to include what the catalog includes, but also the way books are listed. So an example would be that you could uh, take, say, for example, a book about Thomas Jefferson, and you could file that under, I'm just giving an example, I'm not a librarian, but this is just a rough example. You could file that under America, you could file that under um, probably philosophers or historical figures, you could file that under um you know, American history, which would be completely probably accurate. You could also file it under slaveholders, which tells a different story just by the way that it's filed. You could file it under revolutionary leaders, which tells a kind of story, maybe good, maybe bad. Um, you could file it if you perhaps are British under traitors, which tells a story. And so the point here is that the way that books are cataloged in libraries carries with it certain assumptions. Like if we believe that Thomas Jefferson is a hero and we file books about Thomas Jefferson under something that looks heroic, that tells one story. But if we think that he is a villain and we file it that way, it tells another story. If we think he is an inadvertent character in history and file it that way, that tells another story. So understanding that and then trying to disrupt the way that we classically have uh uh, filed and cataloged books so that we can advance the ideas and the po politics of queer theory and presumably the queer Marxism behind it would be queering the catalog. So this is the American Library Association president, Emily Drabinsky, writing in 2013. The abstract reads, critiques of hegemonic library classification structures and controlled vocabularies have a rich history and information studies. So let's decode this a little bit as we go. The first part of this paper, by the way, is much more interesting than the later parts. But um, what's going on here? Well, first we know have a rich history and in information studies at the end of the sentence tells us that information studies, how information is understood, communicated, and so on. The study of how all of that happens is the domain in which this is happening. She frames classification structures under headings like, she says, hegemonic library classification structures, so that there's a broadly accepted way to classify things that um, exerts power and resists change. That's hegemonic. So that and controlled vocabularies. So we're going to now have, we're not going to just name things whatever we want. We're going to use controlled vocabularies. We'll hear, if we get all the way through everything, examples where she wants to use kind of slang terms to categorize books, because that might be what people are looking up uh, when they go looking for them. You, you kind of think of like hashtags in that sense. You hashtag slang something, and then people can look up the hashtags. Hashtags are, in fact, kind of a cataloging device, a, a democratic 
decentralized um, cataloging device. And so she recommends using kind of slang terms, but then that these color the way that people are going to interpret the information that they find. And so she's talking about critique. So we know that this is going to be a critical theory in some sense based approach of the way libraries are cataloged and the structures that those cataloging uh, patterns and, and norms uh, are rooted in through including controlled vocabularies. And she says, well, this is an interesting field because it has a rich history in information studies. She says, this project has pointed out the trouble with classification and cataloging decisions that are framed as objective and neutral, but are always ideological and worked to correct bias in library structures. So this example I gave you about Thomas Jefferson before I started should be elucidating in terms of what her thought is. Remember, my point here is to expose what the hell's going on at the ALA so that everybody cuts off from it. So we'll hear that this is a bit of a problem. And in fact, we're going to see a lot of underlying, you know, re religious advancement in the queer Gnostic sense that I've talked about in the past. But what she said is that her paper, what she's working on here, this queering the catalog, points out the trouble with classification and cataloging decisions, right? So she says these things, the hegemonic nature and the controlled vocabulary she was complaining about previously... Uh, are framed out as being objective and neutral. Thomas Jefferson was a figure in American history. That's an objective truth. But they are actually ideological, is what she's saying. So this is that thing that I've talked about in the past called a dialectical inversion. The attempt at neutrality is framed out as being ideology pretending not to be ideological. Trying to adopt a neutral position, she says, is impossible. You'll notice, by the way, that reactionaries have adopted the same belief. There's no such thing, in fact. So they've given away most of the game to the woke, and now they're fighting in a moral dimension about whose perspective is better. But they fundamentally agree that it's not possible to be neutral. It's not possible to be objective. And so we're going to fight over whose stories get to be told, which, by the way, doesn't have any possible resolution. Uh, you can resolve a objective question. If I tell you a story about water working one way and somebody else tells a story about water working another, we can resolve that objectively by observing water. And so when you step into a thing like library, cataloging, or law, things get a little fuzzier because those are things created by people. But the objective with neutral and objective cataloging or law or whatever is to remove explicit forms of bias as much as possible so that any person, just like with science. So with science, how do we know it's objective? Because if I go and watch the water, it's going to do it. If so-and-so goes and watches the water, it's going to do it. If you go watch the water, it's going to do it. If anybody comes and watches the water, it's going to do it. It is independent of the observer and their beliefs as to what actually happens if we nail down the test. Well, the same thing would be true with law or with a cataloging system is that virtually anybody who comes to this would find it to be a useful and natural cataloging system. Queer theorists say, no, 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 that's a political decision. Filing Thomas Jefferson under American history obscures a lot of uncomfortable truths about him, even though that is probably the first thing people would look up. Like, I want to find a book about Thomas Jefferson in the library. What would I do? Oh, let's go to the American history section and see if we can find one. That's what we're actually looking at. Is, is So the law being independent of who's being judged by the law, the cataloging system being useful independent of who's looking, those kinds of things would in fact be uh, objective and neutral, and they're not necessarily 
ideological. They may be cultural. Uh, there may be cultural differences, and we'll hear about this because that gets exploited later. But it's not the same as to say that they're politically driven, which is what ideological implies. So what we have is the typical dialectical inversion. This thing that you do and this thing that I do are virtually the same thing, but here's why I do it better. So I'm actually better than you because you don't even know why you're doing it wrong. So you attempting to pick the most neutral and objective way to frame things out that people in maybe a given culture are going to use to come try to find information and me coming along and inserting a political agenda into that are basically the same thing because there are sometimes political decisions that have to be made in order to deal with it. So it's political all the time. So it's basically the same. It's the the difference between an intentional overt, in fact, even maybe grooming uh, ideological bias and trying to avoid such a thing to the best of one's ability in an imperfect world are framed to be the same thing. But then the one that the woke are trying to do or the queer theorists are trying to do is framed as being superior because it comes from a more informed or more moral or more uh, uh, broad-minded or whatever perspective that doesn't cause the problems that they will then critique in the existing structure. They won't critique the problems in their own, of course, except on the same terms, so that it only strengthens their position. This is the typical move of what I call dialectical inversion. Your thing and my thing, my political agenda and your trying to avoid one are basically the same thing, and mine is better because I'm better than you. That's the dialectical inversion, and that's what you hear here. Decisions that are framed as objective and neutral are always ideological. And that's what she says her work is uncovering. Of course it is. That's what critical theory does. It always does that. It removes the distinctions between political agendas of woke morons and people trying to do the best work that they can for a broad population uh, in the, the most broadly acceptable way and says those are really political decisions in the same way. Teaching is a political act. Doesn't matter. There's always values in teaching. And it really frustrates me just as parenthetically that the right wing is increasingly, I don't like right wing and left wing anymore, but conservatives are increasingly adopting this perspective that, oh no, that's true. It's all down to that. And our story is better than your story. They're trying to dialectically invert back by accepting the logic that the left has the, the advantage on. It's just like, this is just a disaster to accept their, to validate their logic. Um, but it's very frustrating. I don't know. It's an aside. She says, viewing knowledge organization systems from a queer perspective, however, challenges the idea that classification and subject language can ever be finally corrected. Oh, so the revolution has to be perpetual. See, so we're going to introduce new words and then those are going to be problematic. So we're going to have to introduce new ones and it's going to be queered. It's going to be queered again. It's going to be queered again. That's what queer theory is really about is that nothing can ever become stable, Right. Engaging queer theory and library classification and cataloging together requires new ways of thinking about how to be ethically and politically engaged. See, the thing that we're doing and you're doing are the same, but there's where she says, actually, they're not the same. On behalf of marginal knowledge formations and identities, she says, oh, so that's why you're better than us, who quite reasonably expect to be able to locate themselves in the library. So in other words, lesbians want to be able to go find themselves in the book or in the library, but so do pansexuals and demiromantics and everybody else. And they are being excluded by the fact that they're not easily finding themselves in the library. The inherent narcissism of the project shows up yet again. Um, so you kind of get the sense of what's going on here. But 
you also should get the sense of what's always going on here. This is the thrust of what is a woman is that, well, we're going to, this is engaging queer theory and library cataloging. Sorry. Well, it requires new ways of thinking, but the previous sentence, uh, we challenge the idea that classification and subject language can ever be finally corrected. Well, if they can't ever be settled and nothing's ever objective and, uh, we need new ways of thinking. Well, who's going to have those? Well, the queer theorists are, of course. So how are we going to know how to catalog a library? Well, we're going to have to consult a queer theorist. So in other words, we're going to have a political officer with an explicit political agenda, an explicit political project, and they're the only ones who can know if we're doing something right. Isn't that convenient? In other words, they're setting themselves up. This is a typical Gnostic maneuver. They're setting themselves up to say, we're actually the only ones who understand this thing on a deeper level. You understand library cataloging so far, but it's so limited. That's the dialectical inversion. There's more to it. We understand the more. You don't even know what we're talking about, so get out of the way, and we will be in charge. And how are we going to decide cataloging questions? There's not an objective standard that anybody can learn. You have to refer to one of us. This is how you set up a cult or a Ponzi scheme, uh, and that's exactly what Marxism is. Queer Marxism is no different. And, of course, the narcissism we're going to find ourselves in the library is at the heart of it. And she says, queer theory invites a shift in responsibility from catalogers positioned to offer functional solutions to public service librarians who can teach patrons to dialogically engage the catalog as a complex and biased text, just as critical catalogers do. So this is a lot to unpack also. So Queer Theory invites a shift in responsibility. Who's going to be in charge of figuring out how we're going to organize libraries? Is it going to be catalogers who have a allegedly objective and neutral way of cataloging books? No, we're going to switch this to people like Emily Drabinsky. Activists fill the roles of public services librarians. See, what they're saying is we've set up a reason why we need gurus in charge of libraries, political gurus, and it's going to be us. And what do they do? They can teach patrons to be in the cult. They're going to, Frarian word, Paulo Freire, dialogically engage the catalog as a complex and biased text. Just like critical catalogers, in other words, just like critical theorists do. We're going to teach them, we're going to teach people who come to the library through the activists posing as public services librarians to be critical theorists. We're going to use the library as a groomer device. Oh, to bring people into what? Queer Marxist thought. That's what this is about. And this whole thing's been now decoded, and you understand what the political move is and why we have to break. This is the president of the ALA's main idea about libraries. This is why the ALA has to be divorced. We have to drop it everywhere we can. That is not the function of libraries. It cannot be made the function of libraries. The libraries are turned into grooming entities. that put people called queer theorists in a position of uh, guru authority that knows the real way to engage information and uses it as an opportunity to... Uh, induce people into queer, or sorry, well, yeah, queer theory and critical theory overall. Uh, but this other, one other con- concept here is worth dragging up a little bit, which is engage the catalog as a complex and biased text. So the library catalog itself becomes something you have to read that tells a story that tells you, uh, that, that, um, has its, you know, plot holes and things. Is again, the difference between putting Thomas Jefferson in American history and slaveholders. And that story that's told by the way he's categorized uh, tells you a lot about what you're going to find out. And so if you think of it as a gigantic text that has to be critiqued and literary critique, you can kind of drag back and realize that, yeah, queer theory mostly came out of feminism and 
feminism largely started in English departments where it's like, let's engage life the way that we engage books, which is to do analysis on them and analysis on the book and the book and, and the analysis of the book and analysis on the analysis until there's no book left and everybody hates their life. And that's basically what literary criticism did between the 19, maybe 50s or 60s and 1990s, at which point it became the subject of mockery and wholly ideologically infused. Let's do it to library catalogs too. So how does she write this paper? That was the introduction to her paper. She says, libraries are spaces where language really matters. That's cute. Most of what we hold on our shelves and in our electronic databases are collections of words. Books, journal articles, pamphlets, and ephemeral materials such as zines. You know, like e-zines, like magazines, but on the internet, e-zines, blogs or something. Libraries are also spaces of control. Oh, there we go. Right? So it's just collections of words and words and words and how do we organize words. But they're spaces of control, not just controls about noise and food when the books are due. Cute again. The materials themselves are linguistically controlled, corralled in classification structures that fix them in place, and they are described using controlled vocabularies that reduce and universalize language, remarkably resistant to change. Now that's a lot. So the materials aren't just collections of words, they're linguistically controlled because they are corralled into classification structures. Now, remember when we talked about Hegel and we kind of said, in a sense, Hegel's whole project and the Hermetic project overall is erasing distinctions. But when you look at Hegel, what it really looks like when you read Hegel is that he's like, categories aren't perfect for describing things in the world. Some things are kind of on the edges. Some things don't fit really well. Sometimes the categories are too reductive, like if I hold up, and this is a real example from Hegel, a red apple and a green apple, they're both apples, so the category of apple is complicated in the particulars, but if we can ease up our mind and understand apple as a more abstract thing, and maybe even compare it to its platonic ideal or whatever, then we understand apples in a different way, and then we could see the di distinction between apples and oranges, and oh, they're both fruit, and you could go on and on with this erasing distinctions. Oh, no, they're both fruit. Apples and oranges, both fruit, both fruit, both the same. They're both the same. They're exactly the same. They're the same in all the ways that matter, except that they're not, because if you take a bite out of an orange, just grab it and pick it up the way you would an apple, you're probably going to regret it, or you probably would not regret it with an apple. But if you can't distinguish between certain types of apples and other types, given that most types of apples are pretty dry and bitter and not that good, they exhibit what's called extreme heterozygy, which is one of the most interesting words and phenomena in, in the fruit world, um, then you might have a good or bad experience with apples if we can't discern between a good one and a bad one. So Hegel, in other words, can be described as returning to the unity of all by, and Hermeticism more broadly, returning to the unity of all by erasing our classification structures, our categorizing uh, mechanisms. And the categories are the things that are keeping us from uh, understanding that all is actually one and all can be reunified as one. That's sort of I mean, it's not exactly, but it's sort of what's going on with those philosophies. Well, here it is. The library is linguistically controlled, corralled in classification structures. They fix items in place. They're fixed where they're just like queers, right? Some people are straight. Some people are gay. They're fixed in place. That's really the first observation from Foucault within queer theory. And what does that even mean? And let's break it down and deconstruct it. That's really what it is. 
right? And so now we have 3,000 genders, 3,000 sexualities, 850 million flags, Microsoft making a blend of all of them. I mean, it's it's absurd to try to break down the classification structures that are both necessary and evil at the same time so that people can feel represented but not necessarily corralled by them. It has to be fluid, gender fluid, sexual fluidity. Um, And they're described using controlled vocabularies. So when you set standards for the way that cataloging will go, you have a controlled vocabulary. And that's a problem because what if we had to do something else? And that would reduce and universalize language so that everybody's saying the same thing when they use the same words and we understand stuff. And that's remarkably resistant to change. Yeah, no kidding, because people like to understand what they're dealing with. And actually distinctions and clarifying categories, so imperfect, help us do that. And it's useful and helpful. And we spent a lot of time organizing and building it. And so obviously we're not going to be that happy about destroying it. She says in terms of organization and access, libraries or sites constructed, everything's constructed. Nothing, it just is. It's all constructed by people. Libraries are sites constructed by the disciplinary power of language. Here she's invoking Foucault without mentioning him. Librarians of all kinds conducting research in library and information studies programs, working in technical services, serving at the reference desk, and teaching in the information literacy classroom, work within and against, how hermetic, these linguistic structures. We build and extend them, and we teach users how to navigate them. Well, that's not allowed to be an organic process or one that is constrained. This is It all goes back to the dictionary. Is the dictionary descriptive or prescriptive? Well, it turns out that it's both. You use the dictionary to describe words, and then once you've described them, that is, given them definitions, those definitions set out how people will use words in the future. So it's kind of, you know, they can still move. People still use words differently. They still change words. That's all acceptable, and that eventually makes it into the dictionary, but at the same time, it controls how we use words. It corrals words. This is exactly the same thing that she's complaining about. Libraries are sites constructed by the disciplinary power of language. That's what she's talking about. Critiques of these disciplinary library structures. Remember we said at the heart of the Gnostic project is that everything's a prison and it all comes down to disciplining and punishing and keeping you in prison. Discipline, for Foucault, by the way, discipline and punishment are meant to teach you to keep yourself in the prison. They are meant to teach you a lesson so you won't buck the system. So critiques of these disciplinary structures of library classification, all she's saying is I'm a Gnostic, and controlled vocabularies, somebody else controls my words. I've been flung into this vocabulary. I've been flung into this system of of structures of classifications, and I hate it, and I want to break free and queer them. That's what she's saying. She's saying I'm a Gnostic. But she says that these have a rich history in information studies. So it's interesting to study, apparently. One that can be roughly dated to the late 1960s and early 1970s. Stanford Berman, a U.S. librarian working at the University of Zambia, found that his Zambian users had a very different relation to the term kafirs. I think I'm saying that right, maybe, than his U.S. users did. While kafirs is simply descriptive in the U.S. context to U.S. catalogers, it was virtually racist in Zambia. Oh, okay. So I told you before, there are cultural aspects to this. And this is so typical of freaking Marxists. They find like this weird edge case. So here's this word 
that is not racist in one culture and is racist in another. Here's another one. You're not even really allowed to say this. I say it all the time, but I'm saying that I'm saying it in Chinese. And if I could do the tonals, you would believe me. It's the word coolie. Coolie in Chinese means bitter work, right? Bitter work. But if we spelled it C-O-O-L-I-E in America, that's a racial slur for Chinese people. But in China, guess what they actually call the people who occupy the level of bitter work, which is usually these impoverished laborers? Ta-da, Li, which I said in Chinese, so it's not a racial slur. So yeah, this happens sometimes. Whoop-de-doo, right? So what do you do? Well, in Zambia, you find out that that word isn't a good word. And so you, in a mature, not idiotic system, what you would do is you'd say, well, this is the way that we classify these things. And then you'd, you know, note to Bene, Zambia, and you use some other word. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. And you may even explain why in a footnote. And that's all it really is. We're dealing with a footnote here, right? Well, this is proof in queer theory. Just like intersex people are proof that we have to transition children somehow. This is proof in queer theory that there's this word that's not racist in America, but it's racist in Zambia. There's not this universal culture, so therefore we have to be able to completely upset all classification systems. There's a problem with the classification system. We say all people are male and female, but some people are intersex. Well, we say that we're going to classify words according to this classification system, but some words are racist in other cultures. And this is something that is actually easy to deal with in reality if you're not trying to use it as a political weapon to confuse everything, which is what queer theory does. It's very easy to say that intersex is legitimately the expression of a developmental disorder of some type or another, and there are however many of them, and we can understand them, and here's what best practices of care will be, without extending that and saying, so therefore we must explore whether children have a gender identity that may or may not match their uh, sex, which isn't even biological sex. There's no other kind of sex. Sex is always biological. It's literally the basis of sexual reproduction in biological systems that reproduce sexually. There's only sex. There's no biological sex. So now we have to question whether or not they are uh, sexed correctly because whether or not their sex matches their gender identity, which is a made-up construct to confuse kids. And one of the justifications at the last line of defense when you cut and cut and cut away at their bad arguments for this is, well, intersex people are confounding the sex binary. Total bullshit. Total bullshit. Oh, you can't call that a developmental disorder because it's calling them disordered and it might hurt their feelings. All that does is hurt those people. You try to protect their feelings with words, and all you end up doing is creating situations where we can't deal with the situation as it is in a proper, effective, and compassionate way. These people are, are, are maniacs. They're totally destructive. But this is the same trick. And so that's going to be a justification for having to queer the entire cataloging system because there are words that are racist in one culture but not racist in another. Oh my gosh. Something that literally can be dealt with with a footnote of explanation. Now we have to redo the whole system. Same thing. Same exact thing. The idea that language has meaning only in context. An idea articulated in abstra- articulated abstractly and feels like philosophy, comparative literature, and anthropology was made materially evident. Subject headings often cast by catalogers as a kind of pure, objective language are not. Come on, this is the same garbage where you're blurring different things together. You're making a giant amount of drama out of a small little inconvenience or faux pas. 
oh, it's not universal. Everything's not universal. It doesn't matter that almost all of it is universal and works just fine, except for these, you know, strange cases that come up sometimes that you can deal with with a footnote. No, no, no. The idea that language has meaning only in context, and therefore that's in so many fields, becomes materially evident to everybody. So our subject headings are not in this kind of platonic, they accept this platonism of the world with these abstract ideal forms and basically assume everybody actually works that way, where in reality, most people are just kind of more pragmatic. They actually just don't give a shit about whether or not words are universal. No one needs to give a shit about that. That's fucking stupid. It's a literally fucking waste of time that the only people who can possibly engage in it are people who are so rich and so well-fed and so pampered that they think about this shit with like other people's money. There's no fucking other way to do it. And then they turn that into a mountain of hay and ruin ruin lives over it. It's it's like it's like it's first world world problems isn't even the right phrase. It's like it's like wealth turned pathological, comfort turned pathological and resentful. Yeah, okay, we get it. We don't have to redo all of cataloging for what boils down to a handful of footnotes because of some cultural differences and quirks in some cases, like that some words maybe sound similar in different places. You remember that guy that they fired from his job? He was a communications professor because he was explaining that in Chinese, that the the idea when you can't think of the word is that it's this, in, this thing that's inside your head. It's an inside thing, which is pronounced nega in Chinese, and it sounds like the N-word. And so they fired him because he was explaining that in Chinese, you'll go there and you'll hear Chinese people trying to articulate something, and then they'll say something like, Tasha, nega, 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 trying to think of the word that they're trying to say, or something like that. And then he's trying to communicate that they will communicate this way and that you maybe should be aware of this. And it's sometimes shocking for people to hear. And they fired him for saying something that sounded like the N word because it made people think of the N word. It's kind of like that. You don't need to do any of this. This is just absolutely ridiculous. Oh, pure objective language. I don't know of anybody that thinks that language is purely objective, like in the platonic sense. It's like we all have stumbled upon puns and kind of double meanings and things that are sort of funny like that. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. But she goes on, they're not really objective and pure, and where and when and by whom subject headings are used makes all the difference in terms of meaning. So here's truth married to a lie. All Marxism does is marry truth to a lie. It does not make all the difference. It sometimes makes a little bit of difference. It sometimes matters. Most of the time it doesn't matter. It literally usually doesn't matter. I could think of some more kind of awkward cognates that are kind of funny if I thought about it long enough from one language to another. It's absolutely uh, not this thing that makes all the difference in terms of meaning. They exaggerate. They blend contexts and then act like they have this huge profound insight when really what they're doing is being annoying. And again, from a position of unimaginable comfort. Berman's insight, once shared by other catalogers, including A.J. Foskett, Steve Wolf, that's without an E for those following uh, other discussions, and Joan Marshall, was one that changed the cataloging landscape in the United States for good. Now, I love this. I'm going to pause because this insight, oh my gosh, sometimes there's words that are, oh my gosh, this insight. It's not an insight. It's like, okay, put a footnote. Um at least from a pragmatic perspective, it's not an insight. It's a, it's, it's a contrived insight. Changed the cataloging landscape because stupid activists made a bunch of deal about it and they panicked that maybe they're accidentally doing a racism when 
really they're not accidentally doing a racism. They say, oh, well, well, we didn't mean any offense. This is what it means in our culture. We understand that it's a mistake. Let's use a different word here and make a footnote. Very simple, pragmatic solution to an awkward point. And if you come to the United States, by the way, just be prepared that we don't think of it that way. So, you know, okay. Everybody's okay. The footnotes, footnotes deal with the problem. And it changed the cataloging landscape in the United States for good. Now, I want to ask the question, for good or for good, right? Like permanently or to make things better, because that's how they think of what they're doing. I don't know which one she means. Maybe both. Mobilized by petition. It certainly can't be forever because we just, if everything's socially constructed, like she says, we can just kick her out of her job and then we can turn it back the other way. Oh, not permanently for good. Mobilized by petitions to the Library of Congress, missives in the library journals and newsletters, and organized responses within the American Library Association. Pause for a second. Ten years ago, this was something important already to the American Library Association, this stupid political correctness changing everything for good. Organized responses within the American Library Association, the first program of ALA's Task Force on Gay Liberation was called Sex and the Single Cataloger, a session about the trouble with headings for gay and lesbian materials. Wow. So in at some point, its citation is 1998. So before 1998, at some point, there was a program that the American Library Association started. It was a task force on gay liberation. Liberation is explicitly a communist and hermetic word. Liberation is a hermetic cult religion concept. And it was called Sex in the Single Cataloger, and it was a session about the trouble with headings for gay and lesbian materials, which means that, sure, I can acknowledge there's communism always marries the truth to a lie. I never forget that. I can acknowledge that there might be problems as we're starting to kind of go through the gay civil rights and we're having a whole kind of new vocabulary adopted that people are getting comfortable with. And that might be useful in library cataloging. This happens. Things change. Language changes. The internet came along. All kinds of new words came into existence that we had to deal with. Nobody was texting anything before a few years ago, less than 20. Texting wasn't a thing. DMing wasn't a thing. There's all kinds of words that are new because of different things coming around. Okay, so we have to have some changes to the catalog to update. Updating a catalog isn't really this big thing, but it's now being done through the American Library Association before 1998 with a view toward lesbian and gay liberation. A explicitly Marxist and hermetic agenda was attached to the dealing with the fact that we've got to update some cataloging through the ALA. Did I mention, by the way, that we should be cutting off from the ALA? The ALA has been a problem that has had communist infiltration into it as a professional organization, at least since before 1998. It is long past due that our states say, to hell with this Marxist organization. We're not taking direction from it. We're not giving it money. We're not giving it support. We're not taking its information seriously. She, in fact, says that librarians since the 1970s have made it their business to critically read subject headings for bias, so that activism goes back at least to the 70s, working its way into the American Library Association extremely explicitly by at least the mid-1990s, and ever since, on an accelerating curve, as always happens when you get captured by Marxists. But she says they have made it their business to critically read subject headings for bias, arguing often successfully for changing subject headings to ameliorate bias and altering classification structures to, quote, fix 
the ideological stories told by the classification scheme. In other words, maybe we should think of Thomas Jefferson as a slaveholder instead of as an American uh, history figure. Simultaneously, uh, whatever library, LIS, I forgot what that stands for, faculty, including Hope Olson, Ellen Greenblatt, and others, have made critical engagement with classification and subject language central to their work. Okay, so simultaneously, there are more people who are Marxists working in libraries. And that was Library and Information Studies is what LIS stands for. Faculty and their professors. So Marxist professors working in library and information studies, including these people, have made critical library studies in terms of classification central to their work. She says in both their activism and their scholarship, librarians have convincingly made the case that Library of Congress classification and Library of Congress subject headings fail to accurately and respectfully, that seems to be in the eyes of the beholder, organize library materials about social groups and identities that lack social and political power. Okay, they brought identity Marxism to the Library of Congress organization or classification subject headings domains. And what did they do with them? Started to ruin everything. That's all they ever do. Librarians have worked to correct in which librarians, probably frickin' Marxist ones, have worked to correct incorrect classification decisions and have argued for the expansion and correction of subject headings. That would make more sense if we said that. See, when you just say librarians, you're like, well, yeah, that's kind of their job, right? You know, they're gonna bring it to attention. The things the subject headings need to be moved around a little bit. We gotta get do better, the advancement of the field, blah, blah, blah. But if you were to say Marxist posing as librarians, it would be a completely different read, wouldn't it? That's, of course, what she means, because that's who she's lionizing here. The critical cataloging movement, oh my God, there's a movement, has addressed the problem of bias. Bias, of course, means things that aren't biased toward communism. The problem of bias in these structures it's to overthrow Western civilization, basically. Decolonize the library. Decolonize the catalog is what she means here. Bias. We're overcoming bias. The problem of bias. In these structures, see, it would be biased to say uh, Thomas Jefferson is an American history figure as opposed to a slaveholder. We've left out the part where the critical race theory comes in. You can see how they think. So the critical cataloging movement, thank God for that, has addressed the problem of bias in these structures primarily as a functional problem. Materials are cataloged incorrectly, and they can be cataloged correctly with correct pressure from the activist catalogers. And that's not going to be how queer theorists do it, but see what she, see, this is, the activists are transforming library cataloging is, is what she says has been going on. This project, she says, has meaningfully pointed out the trouble with classification and cataloging decisions that are framed as objective and neutral, calling attention to the fundamentally political project of sorting materials into categories and then giving those categories names. So that's the same thing I told you about Hegel earlier. Oh, we're going to make categories, but the categories aren't perfect, and so what we're going to do is we're going to choose our categories, but that these social theorists since have decided, especially following Marx, are actually political decisions. So when they say something is socially constructed, I remind you, they mean that it is politically constructed by the hegemonic powers that be that they are excluded from. So the social demiurge has organized society to exclude people like them when they could grab and seize the means of production of those things and overthrow the demiurge and become the demiurge themselves, which is, by the way, an evil demon. Their objective is literally to become an evil demon. And there's all these kind of deeply religious reasons why that's what their objective is. While this work has been productive, she says, see, I told you it's not going to be good enough for a queer theorist. It's not enough to start trying to change categories. You have to get rid of them altogether. 
In fact, what that really means is you have to hand it over to queer theorists to manage henceforth. While this work has been productive, its emphasis on correctness locates the problem of a knowledge organization system too narrowly as the domain of catalogers themselves. Oh, correctness is the problem. If you think that there's a correct way to catalog, you've already missed the queer catalog boat. There's no correct way to catalog. You're going to need a guru that tells you, and that's going to require you to hire queer theorists who are activists who are going to ruin everything. As a user services librarian in an academic library, so she's in an academic library, which that's nerds. She probably works at a fucking university. Peace be upon them, or whatever you're supposed to say after you invoke the name of universities. She's a user services librarian, so guess what? Guess what kind of person is going to be the elevated type who's going to know how to handle libraries correctly? I bet you it's user services librarians. Oh yeah, that's what she said in the abstract. As a user services librarian in an academic library, my work with students has made clear the limits of this approach. Even when subject headings are updated to reflect current usage, for example, the inclusion of lesbian as a heading in 1976, concurrent with the rise in lesbian visibility, they do not account for all the other words users might use to describe themselves. See, there's no demisexual. Actually, the word she's going to choose, I'm not kidding, is dyke. There's no dyke category in the professional cataloging. Because it's a people would describe themselves. They wouldn't say, well, I think of myself as a dyke, and that's kind of lesbian, and lesbian seems like a categorizing subject heading, so let's look there. No, they got to have their own little narcissistic nook in the library. Just like Thomas Jefferson has to be filed under slaveholders, because otherwise we'd have whitewashed history or something. From the perspective of user services, the problem of inaccessible knowledge organization is that it can be uh, is one that can be productively addressed at the moment of mediated research, where librarians assist users in dialogic engagement with library access structures. An exploration of this dialogic engagement can productively shift the discussion of what to do about Library of Congress categorizing, or whatever it is, cataloging, and Library of Congress subject headings from the cataloger's desk to the reference desk in the library classroom. Queer theory provides, of all fucking things, queer theory provides a useful theoretical frame for rethinking the stable, fixed categories and systems of naming that characterize the library knowledge organization schemes and strategies for helping users navigate them. So let's back up a second. What was that dialogical crap? Dialogical is the idea that the inferior, the student, the child, the person coming to the library knows more about what they're asking about than the person in charge, the teacher, the parent, or perhaps the librarian. And so rather than coming to the librarian and saying, help me figure out how to find the information that I want by helping me understand how the library is cataloged, they'll say, I can't find myself as a dyke because I can only find a subject heading for lesbian, and that doesn't satisfy my narcissistic needs. So what a dialogical method would do is a librarian would then say, rather than, oh, yeah, it's under dyke, just go look it up, be a fucking adult and get over yourself, what they're going to say is, ah, what a valuable insight. Ah, but if I came and said something, they would say, ah, you're a Nazi, not a valuable insight. So it allows the guru to decide which insights from the community are going to direct the course of the future. That's what they do. That's why it's like as below, so above, as I've talked about before in the Hermetic uh, Transformation Project that they're running. So it empowers, um, it empowers the people who are 
outside of the system to dictate the structures of the system, which usually what it does is it satisfies certain people's um, kind of narcissistic needs, but it makes it virtually unusable for everybody else. But she says, queer theory provides a useful theoretical frame for rethinking stable fixed categories and systems of naming that characterize library knowledge organization schemes and strategies for helping users to navigate them. See, you'd rather have a queer guru guiding you through the library than having anything that, you know, is stable and fixed and comprehensible. Queer theory is distinct from lesbian and gay studies. Let's just underline that for all the people listening. Remember when I got struggle sessioned by those stupid Christian nationalist assholes because I said we got a, the LGBTQ would split and LGB is different from TQ, but especially different from Q. And they went berserk on me and said that I'm woke and a homo and all this stuff. Well, let's just read this again from the queer theorist herself, from a queer theorist herself. Queer theory is distinct from lesbian and gay studies. Hmm. Hmm. How many times do I got to say this before people are going to get it? They're different. They're different. They have different agendas. They do different things. The gay civil rights movement that went through the whatever up through the 90s and 2000s is where we're most familiar with it kind of that ends up in a way, kind of in a very significant way with the Supreme Court ruling of Obergefell in 2000, what was that, 15, is different fundamentally than queer theory. And the queer theorists have acknowledged it all along while hiding behind their bodies and their uh, civil rights movement to advance their poisoned agenda. Let's just read it one more time to drive it in. Listen up. Queer theory is distinct from lesbian and gay studies. And this distinction, while necessarily drawn in broad strokes, is helpful for understanding the potential limits of a corrective approach to classification and cataloging. See the lesbian and gay studies part, which was kind of rooted and still poisoned a bit, but it's something studies, but is rooted in the idea of this identity-based civil rights is in the, oh, we need to update and correct the catalog to reflect current usage camp. That is exactly what we normally do. Whereas queer theory is like, that is just loaded up with potential limits and not what we do, because guess what? There's no guru in charge of that. They are fundamentally different things. And there it is in black and white. They are fundamentally distinct. And the distinction matters. She says, lesbian and gay studies grew out of the recognition that those identities were largely absent from the historical record. Fair enough. The goal was recuperative, and scholars like John Boswell and Lillian Faderman sought to locate lesbians and gays in history where they had been previously missing. Queer theory, however, very different. Queer theory, however, argued that this recuperative approach was dangerous it froze identities in time and universalized them, erasing the real differences that accompany same-sex sexuality on the scales of time and place. Guess who she's about to invoke? Scholars like David Halperin, who I mentioned earlier, and Eve Sedgwick, who wrote Epistemology of the Closet, which I referenced earlier, explored how gay and lesbian identities were and are constituted in the first place. In other words, they did a postmodern queer analysis of those identities, and rather than saying that being gay is a thing that happens, get over it, they were like, no, no, it's inherently a political project of disrupting norms in society. 
That difference is so crucially important for people to recognize and stop confusing. They are different projects. Rather than taking these identities as stable and fixed, queer theory sees these identities as shifting and contextual. So I guess you could, in some sense, pray away the gay under queer theory, but they don't admit that prayer is valid because it's somehow evil and hegemonic. Do you not understand? They are different. How many times do these people have to tell you that they are different before you will get it through your head that they are different? I know I'm talking to a certain niche of my audience, but I really want to drive that home. Rather than taking homosexual identities or same-sex attracted identities as stable and fixed, remember, stability repels revolutions. They don't want these people to be stable. If they were stable and happy and integrated in society, that would be really bad because they won't be revolutionaries. Where lesbian and gay studies take gender and sexual identities as... uh, Sorry, I did it wrong. Rather than taking these identities as stable and fixed, queer theory sees these identities as shifting and contextual. In other words, destabilized. They're not on rock, they're on sand. And if it's on sand, the guru, the wizard, is going to get to control how we understand them from one moment to the next. Time and space. Like they just said. They're in charge of how we're going to understand those things at different times and different places. And when they change, guess who gets to change them? Queer theorists. This is a power grab over meaning-making in terms of identities of sexuality and gender and sex. Where lesbian and gay study, she continues, takes gender and sexual identities as its object of study. So lesbian and gay studies studies gender and sexual identities. Queer theory is interested in how those identities come discursively and socially into being. See, they're wholly socially, therefore political constructions. They're wholly socially constructed, therefore political entities. They have to be disrupted because they carry power with them as political constructions. Queer theory is interested, she says, in how those identities come discursively and socially into being and the kind of work they do in the world. In other words, what does discursively and socially into being mean? It means sexual identities and gender identities are only a function of how we talk about them and believe about them socially, which is exactly what they seek to control. has nothing to do with who you actually are. If you have the wrong politics, you're not really gay. Lesbian and gay studies, she says, is concerned with what homosexuality is. Queer theory is concerned with what homosexuality does, by which she means politically. She's actually not talking about the fact that it's same-sex attraction and whatever follows from that. This analytic approach, she says, locates the trouble with library classification systems and cataloging systems in the project of fixity itself. Nothing can be fixed under queer theory. Lesbian is a fixed identity of woman attracted to woman. Gay is a fixed identity of man attracted to man. Queer theory locates the trouble in fixity itself. As we attempt to contain entire fields of knowledge or ways of being in accordance with universalizing systems and structures, we invariably cannot account for knowledges or ways of being that are access to and discursively produced by those systems. This is the kind of this is the postmodern expression, I should say, of the Ferrarian model. Yeah, there's ways of knowing and being and who you are that we can understand, but there's always going to be people outside of that. And the people who get to decide what counts and how they classify things, those people have unfair power. So what we have to do is disrupt their demiurgic power and take it over for ourselves. 
This is what this power grab is what this is. From a queer perspective, critiques of Library of Congress cataloging and uh, subject headings that seek to correct them. Correcting bad. Correcting is bad. Concede the terms of the Knowledge Organization Project. That a universalizing system of organization and naming is possible and desirable. That's not what queer theory wants. It wants there to be nothing that could possibly be used universally, nothing that people could agree upon, nothing that's stable and fixed, or even amendable as time goes on. That'd be correcting, recuperative. It wants to be in a position to decide in every moment in the future. They want to be the people in every moment in the future who get to control how we understand the things that we're encountering under whichever aspect they control. In this case, it's library classification systems. Which would include also what gets into the library, of course. And she's querying the catalog. Viewing classification and cataloging from a queer perspective. Remember, queer perspective is not like, oh, I'm gay and I'm looking at the library. It means how are there norms in place here, fixed norms, for example, or even amendable norms that need to be disrupted so that I can have power over this place. That's what looking at it from a queer perspective means. Viewing classification and cataloging from a queer perspective, one that challenges the idea that classification and subject language can ever be corrected once and for all outside of the context in which those decisions take on meaning, which is what they want to control, the context in which the decisions take on meaning. They want to control that. They want to control how you're going to understand the things that are in front of you because they are a cult. And if they control that, they can make sure that they control how you think about things because they're a cult. What she says is that that requires new ways of thinking about how to be ethically and politically engaged on behalf of marginal knowledge formations and identities who quite reasonably expect to be able to locate themselves in the library. How often have you ever gone to a fucking library and said, wonder where I can find me in this place? How often has that ever been something that you've done? Who other than a flaming narcissist goes to the library and says, I need to find books about me? I go to the library. I wanted to learn when I was a kid about winemaking. I wanted to learn about some kind of bird. I wanted to learn about lots of different things and uh, lots of things. Origins of consciousness, different philosophical topics, lots of stuff about math at different times. At no point did I say, where can I find a book that tells me more about me, who I am, and how special and important I am? You can hear the narcissism behind the entitlement, behind the Gnosticism, screaming from these people. The point of libraries literally is supposed to be to bring up new ethical and political engagement on behalf of marginal knowledge formations and identities who quite reasonably, what? Expect to be able to locate themselves in the library. I've been flung into this world and don't know who I am or why I'm this way or why anything works this way. I need a book to tell me about who I am. A critical cataloging movement, she says, that locates the problem of cataloging in particular categories or subject headings invites very clear and functional solutions. Librarians can copy, or sorry, librarians can lobby the subject authority cooperative program of the program for cooperative cataloging for uh, changes that, quote, fix the problem. So I can't find a book about dikes. Well, you there's a 
fill out a form. Let's see if we can do something about it. We can maybe fix it. No, 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 that's not going to work. She says a queer approach to classification and cataloging suggests no such easy solution. Maybe I'm a dyke on Tuesdays, but I don't feel that way on Thursdays. Maybe I feel more like a lipstick lesbian on Thursdays. In identifying the problem of classification and cataloging queerly, the solutions themselves must be queer. Built to highlight and exploit the ruptures in our classification structures and subject vocabularies. Okay. So she's saying that we have to build classification structures that exploit the ruptures in classification structures. So that they can, she says, invite resistance to rather than extension of the coherent library systems that a critical cataloging movement for correctness upholds. Okay, so they want to obliterate a coherent library system while installing themselves in positions of power. What do you think that means? It means they want to be the gurus of the library. They want to be the cult leaders who are directing you to only what they want you to know. They want to be able to be the ones who control it. If there's a coherent system that people can understand for themselves, like when we go to study how water does, whatever we were talking about earlier, you can go look at the water yourself. You could go understand, you could go learn the Library of Congress cataloging system and understand how to navigate a library yourself. The librarian doesn't have narcissistic ruling power over you at that point, but they want to set up no coherent library system because then they become centrally important in your quest for knowledge and can direct you to cult-consistent materials, favor cult-consistent materials, and disfavor anything else. Oh, you wanted to learn about Thomas Jefferson. Let's go to the slaveholder section. Or maybe next week it's something else that they classify him as, whatever the political project of the day is. This shift in approach, she says, emphasizes the pedagogical possibilities of our access structures, shifting attention away from, quote, fixing the placement of materials in organizational systems and modifying and elaborating subject language, and toward an effort that engages users in a critical reading of the catalog itself. Grooming. Grooming. Into queer theory. Into critical theory. What she's saying is, what we can do is by getting rid of the cataloging system and setting ourselves up as the gurus of the library, we can teach people to stop thinking that there's a right way to classify materials that you want to find and use it as an opportunity to teach them critical theory and queer theory. We can teach them to engage a critical reading of the catalog itself. We can get them to become exactly what critical theorists are especially after Paulo Freire. They're people who look at the world and denounce everything they want to control until they control it. They call it problematic until it's theirs. And then they get to be a guru. And everybody is working just to break apart whatever is so that nobody can maintain power long. While this might initially seem only an intellectual exercise in theorizing, the effects of such a shift in theory can be translated easily into the daily practice of helping users navigate complex information access structures. See, this might seem like it's theoretical and completely nonsense because there's no stable categorizing system for the library anymore, but what it translates into is we, as the librarians, get to help people understand how to understand the information in front of them. They get to become groomers. Public service librarians. Oh, that's me. 
meaning Emily Drabinsky. I'm that. I get to watch this. I'm going to be important. I know who would be perfect for the groomer library role. Me! Watch! Public service librarians already engage in dialogue with users about classification and cataloging. See, they already do it. When these interactions are informed by a queer analytic, such work shifts from one of correcting the user's engagement, teaching them to actually use a library that's organized, with fundamentally and and inextricably biased retrieval systems, but that's why you don't want to do that, to one of teaching the user to engage the catalog as a complex and biased text, just as the critical catalogers do. One of us, one of us, one of us. We can recruit more people to be in our cult who think of the world the way we do. When these interactions are framed, informed by a queer analytic, the work of public service librarians shifts from one of correcting the user's engagement with fundamentally and inextricably biased retrieval systems, whatever's there is already bad, to one of teaching the user to engage like a critical theorist. It's cult grooming. This strategy suggests the possibility of a queer library politics, which is what she has at the ALA, which is why we should all leave it. A queer library politics that, rather than attempt to resolve the paradox of queer classification and cataloging, embraces and extends the user's engagement with it. So queer cataloging is by definition paradoxical. If you catalog, you're not being queer because queering is resisting all cataloging. So that's paradoxical, but she's like, eh, we're going to do it anyway. Because paradoxes are fun, and that's what Queer Theory leans into. So nothing's going to make sense. Nothing's going to be organized. Nothing's going to be universal. And your local public service librarian is going to be your guru that introduces you how to understand information. She says, what's wrong with library knowledge structures? She says, this queer analytic represents an intervention in the extensive discourse of critiques of Library of Congress cataloging and Library of Congress subject headings dating from the 1970s, which is when the Marxists tried it, got into universities and started screwing everything up, with work by Berman, Marshall, and Foskett all in the 1970s persisting into the present. Berman maintains, quote, scorecards documenting changes to the Library of Congress subject headings, RADCAT, a listserv for radical catalogers maintained by K.R. Roberto. You know, for queer Theorists, these are very Marxist activities, but these are the Marxists actually that were doing it in the 70s. She's just pointing at them. So RADCAT, there's always got to be a radical something, radical cataloging, my God, remains a popular list serve for politically motivated catalogers. We need literally zero of those people. The number of politically motivated catalogers that need to exist in our libraries is zero, which is why we need to remove ourselves from the ALA, which is now run by somebody who believes that that's very important and that that informs all of her work and is actually, at least since the mid-1990s, exactly what the ALA has been doing anyway. So then she mentions also Jenna Friedman, a zine librarian, Jesus, a zine librarian who periodically blogs about changes to the Library of Congress subject headings, a blogger. Both practitioners and theorists have argued that library knowledge organization systems of all kinds fail to accurately and re- uh, respectfully, according to who, to whom, I guess, sorry, organize library materials about social groups, always about social groups because they're identity Marxists, and identities because they're identity Marxists, that lack social and political power. See, it's all about making this about how to serve the people who are going to use critical theory to denounce everything in front of them, problematize everything in front of them until they control it. 
Works about religion in the Dewey Decimal System are overwhelmingly Christian. Oh no. Works about heterosexuality are barely named as such in the Library of Congress uh, subject headings. Uh, Okay. As a result of these, it turns out you don't really need to do that. And you're going to say, oh, that's hegemonic. Of course, you're just being hegemonic heterosexuality. Guess what? 97% of the freaking population is heterosexual, so get over it. Human sexuality is overwhelmingly heterosexual. You don't have to actually categorize the norm. As a result of these failures based, uh, sorry, as a result of these failures, biased ideological stories continue to be told by the organizational systems, told as in quotes, like that heterosexuality is freaking normal, which it is because we are a sexually reproducing species that would go out of business, we'd go extinct if we weren't heterosexually reproducing frequently enough. As users interact with these structures to browse and retrieve materials, they inevitably learn negative stereotypes about race, gender, class, and other social identities. Negative stereotypes as defined by whom? Oh yeah, the Marxists, that they're the identity Marxists that they're empowering to get in these positions. For example, they quote, learn that ethnocentric myths are true, like that Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism are minor religions compared to Christian monotheism. Well... Numerically speaking, that's sort of changing with Islam, uh, but um, not here. But that's an ethnocentric myth, right? But at any rate, the Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism are minor religions. Again, this is something that would fall into the category of correcting if it's a problem at all. We don't need to queer anything, but this has to be used as a justification to queer everything. Similarly, they, quote, learn that heterosexuality is normative. It is. That gay and lesbian sexuality is the only sexual identity that ought to be examined. Uh, I don't know about, I don't even know if it needs to be examined. Who's writing the books are getting public or they're getting read about it? Probably freaking gays and lesbians. And that queer sexuality is inherently deviant. Well, I read the books. Turns out that it is. I don't know what to tell you. I literally don't know what to tell you. You haven't written a book or a paper that hasn't praised deviant sexuality from the beginning. Half of them, more than half of them, including the foundational ones, all praise pedophilia. There's a lot of deviance going on. You're talking about bringing... I mean, we're talking about Gail Rubin, 1984, thinking sex. You're talking about bringing kink to the workplace. Like, come on. This is inherently deviant. Boo-hoo. Critical work around library classification and cataloging locates bias at both the structural and descriptive level. As I told you, this all gets kind of boring. Decisions about classification and classificatory language have both been sites of their critiques. Critics of biased classification argue that the placement of materials in the classification can reflect prejudice about certain identities. That's what I was saying before. In some cases, they are, connect- they are concerned about the ideology that underlines the decision underlies the decision to place materials at one point in the classification instead of another. For example, locating materials about transsexuality at RC560.G45, the point in the classification schedule for sexual and psychosexual conditions, suggests that transsexuality is a psychological disorder that can be remedied with treatment rather than just another way of existing in a gendered world. (laughs) Oh, or a political position, or a religious or philosophical experience. Isn't it interesting that she says transsexuality might not be something related to psychological disorders, 
but it might be a religious experience. Huh. Isn't that interesting? And then she also mentions just another way of existing in a gendered world, which imports the entire uh, social constructivist thesis, which they are in control of because they get to decide. They're the only experts who understand it because it's fucking made up. When materials about transsexuality are located elsewhere, for example, in HQ 77, the emphasis on the social aspects of this identity are emphasized in ways that contradict what some users might feel are the biological or psychological causes of transsexual identity. The variable classification of two different editions of the autobiography of Christine Jorgensen provides an example, and I assume it's pronounced Jorgensen, maybe it's Jorgensen, provides an example of this problem. The Library of Congress assigned the 1967 edition of Christine Jorgensen, a personal autobiography, the class number RC560.C4J6. The 2000 reissue from Kleist Press was assigned the number HQ77.8J67. In both cases, the ideological bias of the classifier is revealed by the classification decision. Additionally, critics argue that the placement of materials in relation to one another indicates bias, or a failure to represent materials about social identities correctly. Roberto has argued that the placement of materials about transsexuality adjacent to materials about gay and lesbian sexuality creates a false understanding that gender and sexuality are congruent. Remember, like LGBT does? Huh. Hmm. Huh. Steve Wolf captured the outrage of 1970s queer catalogers in his 1972 contribution to Revolting Librarians, an essay that called Library of Congress to task for both its homophobic classification of materials related to homosexuality ordered under the heading Sexual Deviance until 1972, writing, quote, Our dearly beloved Library of Congress until this year classed what straights call homosexuality in the HQ70s under the general heading Sexual Deviations. This was unbiased, objective, non-judgmental. After agitation by the cataloging sect of SRRT's Task Force on Gay Liberation, LC Library of Congress pulled homosexuality from the shadow of sexual deviations into the clear descriptive light of sexual life. End quote. For Wolf, category categorical so that sounded like a correction to me, but okay. For Wolf, categorical decisions like this one carry a weight far beyond the simple location of materials on library shelves. Their location tells an ideological story. They quote homosexuality, in quotes, to suggest that the subject language is also wrong, is deviant, a behavior to be legislated, medicated, and policed. The classification decision marks LGBTQ materials. Look, she just used the frickin' acronym that she just bitched about at the start of the paragraph. Is always already deviant. Let me finish the paragraph and then put those side by side. In all of these cases, dominant classification structures represent materials about gender and sexuality in ways that are inaccurate at best and discriminatory at worst. So here she's reifying the idea of LGBTQ materials, which reifies the idea of a LGBTQ conglomerate. So LGB, lesbian, gay, bisexual, are sexual orientations. Trans, T, is a form of self-identification, which is not the same, and it's actually gender-related or sex-something. It is not 
sexuality. And then Q is a political identity that resists all norms. Somehow there's a block of LGBTQ, which these things are not the same. Three of them are related to one another, and I can see how you could actually kind of say they're similar or the same. T is fundamentally different because it's not about sexuality at all. And Q is a fucking political identity. But then what does she eat? That's at the end of the pair. The classification. There it is, right? LGBTQ materials, blah, 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 as a thing. But then Roberto has argued that placement of materials about transsexuality adjacent to materials about gay and lesbian studies creates a false understanding that gender and sexuality are congruent. If you think it's a problem, why did you use it in the same freaking paragraph? Because what you're doing is fake. The right word for fake is contrived. And it is contrived that you get to know when to do it and everybody else is wrong so that you can exert power over them. It's bullshit. It's unacceptable. And it proves that the people that are running this program are frankly full of shit and uh, power hungry. And if they're in charge of the ALA, we can't have the ALA dictating really anything because this is not acceptable. It's simply, yeah, well, that's what, on whose terms acceptable? On the terms of we're not going to have Marxists who want to have power over us on the terms of that is the foundational principle of the United States is that we don't hand arbitrary power to people because nobody deserves arbitrary power. You want a simple, single, fundamental principle of the United States? Nobody gets to have arbitrary power. This is them claiming arbitrary power. The Tennessee state constitution, in fact, says that the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power, I'm resisting it right now, by the way, is slavish absurd and to the detriment of the good of mankind or something like this. So we are commanded by our constitution in the state of Tennessee to resist grabs for arbitrary power. This is arbitrary power. The founding principle of the United States, throwing off King George in the Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson, is that you don't get to have, oh, you're a king? You Who made you king? I didn't vote for you, as they put it in Monty Python. Arbitrary power is unacceptable. You don't have a divine right to rule as a king. You're just a dude who farts too. I read everybody poops. Get over it. You're a dude that poops too, king. And you don't get to have that. Well, Emily Drabinsky probably poops and writes freaking articles about it because, well, that'd be queer to do that. It'd be like queering library cataloging about pooping or something. You don't get to have arbitrary power. That's the principle. That's not hegemony. It is actually the prevention of anybody getting to establish bogus hegemony. Nobody gets to be an arbitrary power. Critiques of classifications like these are less common, she says, than those that address bias in cataloging or the selection and assigning of a subject heading language. Subject headings are the controlled terms that bring the classification structure to the public. They are the terms users see when they navigate our catalog and the terms our users click on to collate materials in our collections. Hope Olson and Rose Schlegel suggest that the comparative richness of subject heading critiques is, di is directly related to their public aspect. Quote, subject headings are far more commonly examined than classification. This might be because the omissions and, and racist, sexist, xenophobic, etc. biases and subject headings are presented to us directly on our screens of our online catalogs. See, we see the bias. Where subject language is central to access, classification decisions are often thought to provide, quote, simply a shelf address, end quote leading librarians and catalogers to, quote, disregard the influences of context on how a work is perceived, end quote. Context is exactly what they 
want to control and manipulate. They create a wizard circle where they control the context to their political ends that's put up against people who are trying to minimize that control, which they call being as objective and neutral as possible. Since that can't be done perfectly, they say doing it on purpose and trying to avoid it are actually two aspects of the same thing, except the one where we do it on purpose is for a liberating and good purpose, whereas the other one, trying to avoid it, it ignores the fact that you can't avoid it and therefore imports it implicitly and therefore is doing evil by accident and has no right to do it. That's the dialectical inversion again. I keep using that term. In simplified terms, she says, while classification decisions might tell a story to the browser, subject heading choices tell a story to the searcher. Berman, the most prominent critic of subject headings, first articulated his argument in the late 1960s as a cataloger at the University of Zambia. While cataloging materials using Library of Congress subject headings, Berman's Zambian users informed him that using the subject heading Kaffirs to catalog materials in the Zambian context was to use a virulently racist epithet. Useful in the U.S. context and racist in Zambia, the problem of Kaffirs revealed for Berman the problem with using a universal language emanating from the hegemonic white male Christian culture at the Library of Congress. We're literally dealing with a footnote situation that transformed libraries forever because critical theorists are lunatics and latch onto any excuse to seize power. Thus launched Berman's lifetime struggle to revise subject headings in order to ameliorate bias. His 1971 volume, Prejudices and Antipathies, in other words, to introduce freaking politically correct language to offend zero people with, by accident with a clumsy subject heading. His 1971 volume, Prejudices and Antipathies, widely available in a 1993 reprint, argued famously that Library of Congress subject headings, quote, can only satisfy parochial, jingoistic Europeans and North Americans, white-hued and at least nominally Christian, and preferably Protestant in faith, comfortably situated in the middle and higher income brackets, largely domiciled in suburbia, fundamentally loyal to the established order, and heavily imbued with the transcendent, incomparable glory of Western civilization, end quote. That sounds like some serious freaking mental illness. All other viewpoints and contexts that lay outside of those dominant boundaries could not be represented by the existing Library of Congress list. I think I could rant for a long time about this, but I'm just not going to this time. Insert any one of my rants that you've ever heard, and it's probably the right one. Berman's work was joined by catalogers like Marshall... Wolf and Foskett in the 1970s and 1980s, and it was extended by Wayne Dines and Greenblatt in their contributions to the 1990 anthology Gay and Lesbian Library Service, and then into the present by Roberto and Friedman. Marshall, in 1977, argued that mainstream cataloging language was patriarchal, and she developed, now a feminist, and she developed a thesaurus for cataloging feminist collections. Fucking so valuable. You know how many resources it takes to support a person doing that for a living? In her groundbreaking piece in Gay and Lesbian Library Service, Greenblatt, 1990, pointed to the problem of outdated subject headings for LGBT materials. They're using the acronym again. Her historiographical... I can't do the syllables right. Historiographical work was updated in the second version of that title, Serving LGBTIQ Library and Archives Users, 
from 2011, a book whose expanded acronym tells us something about the rapid changes in language around identity. Yeah, you mean in contrived bullshit because you've just told us two paragraphs ago that it doesn't mean anything and confuses people and isn't acceptable. Friedman writes a blog about the lack of subject headings for her institution's Women of Color zine collection. The poverty, the word zine, just Z-I-N-E, just pisses me off. The poverty of relevant Library of Congress subject heading headings makes cataloging those zines nearly impossible. It's just better to just delete them then. These critics of Library of Congress cataloging and Library of Congress subject headings why are zines going to the Library of Congress anyway? Share one core belief. Classification schedules and subject headings promulgated by the Library of Congress are often wrong and should be corrected. See, they're shooting hard at the Library of Congress, the biggest official thing. The problem is not that cataloging happens. Yes, it is. But that it happens incorrectly. Oh, what she's saying is that's, that's the mentality. My bad. Critical catalogers are positioned as outsiders to the cataloging process. They are. They're not cataloging at all. All they're doing is bitching in order to gain control. Resisting biased, controlled vocabularies and fixing Library of Congress subject headings for the rest of us. Missing from these arguments is a reckoning with the problem of cataloging itself. Just as Library of Congress classification and cataloging decisions can be critiqued, so can the revisions suggested by critical catalogs be subject to debate. For example, in a 1972 essay for the book Revolting Librarians, Marshall argued against the Library of Congress's decision to add the subject heading Mammies, saying, quote, Could any of us, without mumbling, embarrassed, and probably useless apologies, even if we dared tell a young, mili- tell a young militant black woman who wanted material on the subject to look under Mammies? Why not slavery in the U.S., oppression of women, or Negro women, hyphen, oppression? Dash, I guess, sorry. For Marshall, 30 years ago, the heading Negro Women is an improvement over the term Mammies. In 2012, such a term would be targeted by activist catalogers for removal. Sounds like the activist catalogers are the problem, and maybe they should be subject to removal. The example points to the challenge posed by a politics of knowledge organization that seeks to, quote, fix, both as correction and in place, classification and cataloging decisions in library structures. See, even the people who are trying to make it better, those people are actually causing the problem themselves, so what we have to do is replace them with queer gurus. Such corrections are always contingent, she says, and never final, shifting in response to discursive and political social change. Just as Negro women could make political sense in 1972, but not in 2012, the corrections suggested by Berman, Friedman, and Roberto today are just as subject to the contingent vagaries of history and standpoint. Such work often fails to acknowledge such contingency. We use different words for things now. Some things became considered impolite, and so something. So give me power. Berman writes of Library of Congress. See, what she's saying is there's no platonic form of cataloging and subject headings, so therefore somebody like me has to be in charge of that. Berman writes of Library of Congress categorizing cataloging and Library of Congress subject headings that, quote, there can be no quarrel about its value as a globalizing standard or global standardizing agent, a means for achieving some uniformity in an area that would otherwise be chaotic. Knowledge and scholarship are, after all, universal, end quote. Uh-oh. His conclusion, shared by a generation of catalogers who have seen their role 
as corrective agents reiterates an approach to classification and cataloging that elides contingency as a factor in determining what classification and cataloging decisions are imagined to be correct in any given context. Taking into account such contingency requires theorizing the trouble with classification and cataloging in library knowledge systems as at the root rather than along the branches. Okay, see, so even the guy who complained about the racist Zambia word is like, obviously, it's useful to do some categorizing. I mean, having these standards is helpful. Otherwise, it would all be chaos. And then along comes the head of the current American Library Association, Emily Drabinsky, who looks like a reject from Revenge of the Nerds. And she's like, no, there should be no cataloging unless we acknowledge that it's problematic and people like me are in charge of it. American Library Association has to go. It's gone. It's dead. We shouldn't be using it. It's just dripping poison into our libraries. Queer theory, she tells us, offers a useful analytic for developing such a critique. Of course it does, because you're a queer theorist, you asshole. Queer theory has its roots in disruption of rather than assimilation to norms of identity. So what is queer theory about? Is it about gay rights? No. Is it about understanding gay or lesbian issues? No. No, 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 no. We already heard that before. Queer theory has its roots in disruption of norms of identity. Some people are gay, get over it. Queer theory has a big problem with that. That would be assimilation to norms of identity. We're going to get rid of them. Politically, she says, queer emerged as part of a political movement of gender and sexual minorities in the 1960s, distinct from mainstream lesbian and gay movements, distinct from them. Listen, groups like Queer Nation resisted assimilationist strategies that sought rights on the basis of stable and unchanging identities. The thing that people say is the slippery slope. Oh, people got gay people got married. Now we have drag queens don't understand what they're talking about, and they're walking into a trap that has been laid for them. The trap is that we're going to play the slippery slope game, try to relitigate the 1990s, which culture has already accepted. Yeah, gay civil rights mattered. They're going to lose that fight, and then they're going to get framed as rising anti-LGBTQ hate. And the reason that they're doing it is because they're saying there's a straight-line slippery slope from gay civil rights straight into queer provocation to disrupt our society. And they don't understand that right here, all the history tells you again and again and again that they're not the same thing. Groups like Queer Nation, distinct from mainstream lesbian and gay movements, resisted assimilation of strategies that sought rights on the basis of stable and unchanging identities like gay and lesbian and bisexual. They have to be unstable, changing identities that disrupts norms of identity. That's all it wants, disruption and instability. Turns out that stable gay and lesbian and bisexual identities don't disrupt stable norms of identity. They are those. Queer theory also found roots in a postmodernism that challenged the idea that truth could be final. For queer theory, knowledge, both of the self and about the world, is understood to be discursively produced, socially powerful, and always already undergoing revision. Therefore, you have to have a guru who's going to be in charge of understanding everything because it's always changing and only they know how it's changing because they're the only ones who have the knowledge of how it's changing. Queer theory resists the idea that stable identities like lesbian or gay exist outside of time. Rather, these identities exist only temporarily in social and political contexts that both produce and require them. Queer theory 
sees claims to universal and unchanging identities as both unattainable and undesirable, particularly in the sense that they elide the social power of uncontested claims to the truth. So other identities that they would say are not stable or that don't exist outside of time would be man and woman. Man and woman used to be taken to be males and females, biologically. Now there are men that can be women and women that can be men, and you're going to have to have a queer theorist who can sort it out for you. Just like the Supreme Court justice said, incorrectly claiming that a biologist could help her when actually only a queer theorist could help her. In the library context, she says queer theories can refocus attention away from the project of producing correct knowledge organization systems, pointing toward a project of dialogic pedagogical inventions that push all users to consider how the organization of an access to knowledge is politically and socially produced. So, Frankly, while she cites herself here, I'll mention a little bit more of this. Uh, the next se section is queer critique of classification and cataloging. I will encourage you and put uh, make available this PDF to you. I'm only halfway through this paper. I'm not going to suffer for, what are we already at, almost two hours, two more hours going through this bullshit for you. I'm going to summarize a little bit more and skip to the conclusion so you can get the idea. You have the idea, but I want you to hear just a little bit more. Uh, and we'll close this thing up. When queer theoretical claims about the instability of identity categories come into contact with the knowledge organization project, the trouble with correction becomes quite clear, she says. Grant Campbell and Patrick Kilty have taken up the issue from historical and literary perspectives on queerness, while Emily Drabinsky, that's her, has explored the queer challenge to library classification and cataloging explicitly in spatial terms. The entire project of library classification and cataloging is at odds with queer ideas about historicity, contingency, and the impossibility of a fixed linguist of fixed linguistic signs, sorry, of a fixed system of linguistic signs that would contain identities that are always already relational and contingent. A queer perspective on classification structure sees categories as discursively produced and historically contingent rather than as essential or articulable once and for all. So here's a punchline for you. If that's true, a pornographic groomer book that we would classify, say, two years ago as a pornographic groomer book, that's a contingent, discursively produced thing. It's not really essentially pornographic or really essentially grooming. It's only considered that in an earlier time and place. And now... There are other historical contingencies that make it essential and articulable that we put queer groomer books with pornography in them in libraries. She says a queer approach to language resists the idea that naming is ever outside of power or resistance. Well, you name the book pornographic, or you name the book groomer, or you name the book inappropriate, and that turns out to be an ex exercise of illegitimate power, not a statement of fact about the book, because there are no statements of fact. There might be some other thing, like grooming kids. It's more important. So we have to have this book in, which is not grooming, because that word sounds bad, so they have to call it something like liberating. A queer approach to language resists the idea that naming is ever outside of power or resistance. In both cases, the project of a critical library classification becomes less about correction and more about locating the ruptures in the structure, developing what Olson has called, quote, techniques for making the limits of our existing information systems permeable. So that which is pornographic can 
be considered something else because the classification system is permeable. So the thing that would used to have kept those things out has holes in it and lets them in. This goes on and on of this kind. Um, there's this part about the dikes. I'm not going to read the part about the dikes, but she sees herself as a dike. Um, trying to skip down to the end. Sorry. So I'll read the conclusion to you, but not the whole conclusion because it's also several paragraphs nobody wants to read. Um, queer interventions. There's lots of sections. I encourage you to go read the whole paper, but it gets boring from, you know, some point, which maybe we already passed. So the conclusion Let's see. The problems of bias in library classification structures and subject language are, from a queer perspective, problems endemic to the knowledge organization project itself. If social categories and names are understood as embedded in contingencies of space, time, and discourse, then bias is inextricable from the process of classification and cataloging. So they want to control the bias. That's obviously what they always do. When an item is placed in a particular category or given a particular name, those decisions always reflect a particular ideology or approach to understanding the material itself. That's what they want to control so that they can control how you understand and contextualize information because they always manipulate context to their advantage. This fundamental insight challenges the traditional approach of activist librarians who see as a paramount as paramount the task of cor correcting classification and cataloging schemes until they become unbiased and universally accessible structures. Such a project contains an inherent tension. Correction can mask the inescapable contested ideological work performed by catalogers who must make these decisions every day. So instead of having specific categories, they want these things to be contextual. They want to be able to control the context. So again, gender queer or lawn boy or flamer or any of these books can be classified in a way that allows them to circumvent the protections that we have of keeping obscene materials away from minors. Approaching the problem of library classification and cataloging from a queer perspective demands that we leave intact the traces of historicity and ideology that mar the classification and cataloging project. I skipped that part of the paper. Such traces, so we have to leave intact some of the catalog so we can learn from it. Such traces can reveal the limit of the universal knowledge organization project, inviting technical interventions that highlight the constructed nature of classification structures and controlled vocabularies. These traces also represent moments when burden, when the burden of undoing the hegemony of library classification and cataloging shifts from the back office to the reference desk and classroom where people like herself, public service librarians, can intervene and emphasize the discursivity of classification and cataloging by engaging in critical reflection with users about what they do and do not see in the library catalog. Queer theory challenges us to interrogate the processes and power relations that produce certain ways of knowing and being as correct and others as wrong, deviant, and less worthy of life. Really. Pedophilia is wrong. It is deviant, and it is less worthy of life. I'm sorry, it is. A lot of the kink stuff. Any of this, like, I'm not even going to describe. I'm not even going to describe. Grooming children is wrong. It's deviant. It is less worthy of life. When brought into conversation with the literature of critical library classification and cataloging, let me go back. Let me add another one. Telling children that they can be born in the wrong body and need to be transitioned medically and socially and psychologically, affirming that, feeding them materials that lead them to believe that, is wrong, deviant, and less worthy of life. It should be marginalized. It should be excluded. It should be 
uh, held outside of library that children can access or that people really can access. It should be, and if we were in Harry Potter, it would go in the restricted section where actually capable and responsible adults for capable and, and reasonable reasons would let them have access for, you know, maybe study of what crazy people and evil people think. When brought into conversation with the literature of critical library classification and cataloging practice, queer theory informs new strategies for teaching the library catalog from a queer perspective. That benefits nobody, except for the people who steal power, and only temporarily, because, like I said, it requires an extraordinary amount of privilege to be this kind of person. And they don't have the capacity to run a, a societal system that can maintain the conditions that allow that level of privilege. They are a self-defeating catastrophe. Beyond this narrow intervention, however, such an engagement offers other disciplines material ways to think about and teach about discourses of power. In other words, you get to do critical theory in other places because the library is helping you do it. Structures of power are often abstract and difficult to perceive or explain to students as real. For example, considered against the background of a dominant fantasy of equal opportunity, explaining the ways that choices and life chances are produced by mechanisms that precede the subject can be difficult, like systems of power. A queer reading of Library of Congress catalog cataloging or whatever in Library of Congress subject headings offers a concrete way of understanding the way these mechanisms work in time. The ideology that consigns gay and lesbian sexuality to the subject classification for sexual deviance or classifies sexuality of all kinds as social problems has ramifications beyond the library catalog for people who claim those identities. The text of the library classification and cataloging structure enables us to apprehend these ideologies directly off the page. That's the end of the paper. I skipped a bunch of the middle. We're not going to go back. Okay, let me do that second to last sentence just a little bit, right? So she brings up this thing, and then we're going to wrap this up and get out of here. So she brings up this thing, subject classification for sexual deviance. Okay, so right. So the ideology that consigns gay and lesbian sexuality to the subject classification for so sexual deviance, which I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, that's where it belongs or classify sexuality of all kinds as social problems has ramifications beyond the library of catalog for people who claim those identities. It has maybe problems bigger than that. I don't know. But anyway, anyway, communism always marries truth to a lie. And this is marrying truth to a lie. Okay? It is absolutely true that maybe, probably, classifying gay and lesbian sexuality as sexual deviance is a problem, especially for gay and lesbian people. That's true. The conclusion, however, is that queer people, or sorry, queer activists, queer theorists, queer Marxists need to be in control of the information flow is preposterous, right? Classification systems are not perfect. They are amendable. There could be situations where we have to use a footnote. What we don't have to do is blow up the whole system and render it to this kind of chaos that's now controlled by a particular kind of activist as a result, because that also has ramifications beyond the library catalog for people, as lots of them. There is no justification for inserting a queer project because at one point in history, gay and lesbian sexuality was considered a form of, of sexual deviance, and that's how it had to be categorized. Then that now we could actually categorize it under gay and lesbian sexuality, which is just a different subject heading that is actually more neutral. 
So the idea of achieving or moving toward more neutrality is actually not that difficult if we're not being led down the primrose path by stupid activists who want power more than anything, and obviously to locate themselves in the library, little narcissists. So the, the takeaway from this is that the American Library Association, which Montana has cut away from, other states are trying to cut away from, I think every state that can should. I think that every municipality or county or school district that can should cut out, cut out the library the American Library Association from your library decision-making process. Don't give them money. Don't take their materials. Ignore them. Cut them out of the process. Make a mass movement away from the ALA. And the reason that we should is because the ALA is led openly by a queer Marxist who said that her identity as such informs virtually everything she does and that she actually acts in accordance with that uh, quite visibly, but more importantly, that here in this paper, which she writes 10 years ago, that was clearly well before she was president of the ALA, is how she thought the ALA should work, pointing to facts that proceeded back at least into the 1990s, that that's how the ALA has been trending already. The ALA is a corrupt organization. It's led by a person who uh, is not qualified to run anything because she is a power-grabbing narcissist and a Marxist and a queer theorist, which has nothing to do with her lesbian identity. It's not in the least bit interesting. In fact, the only thing it has to do with her lesbian identity is that she constantly has to challenge her own the stability of her own sexual identity, which is just kind of sad, frankly. But what this means is that we have to really start pushing. If you want to solve the problem in the libraries, public libraries and school libraries, this includes the problem that brings Drag Queen Story Hour into libraries, that brings the sexualized pornographic books and so on into libraries. We have to understand that the American Library Association, while not the only part of the problem, is a very big part of that problem. There are very clear reasons for understanding that, which can be summarized under the title of this paper, which I've also made part of the title of this podcast, Queering the Catalog. Queering the Catalog is an unacceptable politically activist-driven catastrophe of a project that has no place in American civic life. None. Absolutely none. And so it's time for us to move away from the American Library Association. When you go and you fight about the library books, if you're that kind of grassroots activist, or you try to make a case to a school board, to a county commission, to city council, you go on TV and talk about these issues, repeatedly point out that there are reasons to believe that this problem comes at least in part from the top, that the American Library Association is affiliated with these ideas, with the broader International Federation of Library Associations, which is in, in, in conjunction with the exact same project from UNESCO and the United Nations Sustainable Development Project, and that this is not something that has any place. America didn't vote on this. We didn't vote on adopting the sustainable development goals and putting it in our freaking libraries. That's a top-down power thing that our communities should be able to say no to. We should have the right at the local level, at the state level, and in fact at the federal level to say, no, we're not participating in this. If our federal government decides that they want to tell us that, we have a 10th Amendment right and a 9th Amendment right for localities and states to say, no, we're not participating in the Sustainable Development Goal Library Project. We see where that road goes and we're not interested in it and we're not having it in our community. And bring that up, that this is a very broad project, that the ALA is very centrally uh concerned with it, and that the ALA, ALA president is an outspoken queer theory activist and Marxist, openly so, proudly so, 
openly says that this influences how she does her work, and that she wrote a paper called Queering the Catalog that says that it's supposed to make the catalog classification system porous, permeable to bring in materials in particularly in school libraries and public libraries where children have access um, access to bring in materials that, that are inappropriate for those kids by messing around with subject headings and classifications so that they can make it through the perme those would those subject headings would make a wall right mature adult reserved rated rated r rated x whatever those would be subject headings that they are saying need to be permeable for contingent reasons or whatever. And you can bring up the fact that the AL, ALA is part of the problem and the ALA president, Emily Jabinski, has been saying for well over a decade that that's really the purpose that she has behind library work is to create and increase that permeability for queer projects, which we find unacceptable. She's very clear in many ways that it's an imposition of a religious perspective. Um, she said, in fact, that queer identities should be read as, or transgender identities should be read as a religious experience, not sexual deviance, um, and that violates your rights. That violates our rights. <laughs>